we're ready for ready for the Lord to come back. That's good. Turn turn with me uh, in your Bibles to John chapter five, as we continue in our march through the book of John. John chapter five. I'm going to begin reading in verse one. Um, that is on page 980 in your pew Bibles. If if you come here and you go back home and you still don't have a Bible, that's your fault. Uh, that's our gift to you. Please take that with you if you need a Bible. Page 980. The big numbers are the chapters. And the little bitty numbers in superscript are the verses. Um, this passage is the third of seven signs in the book of John. Um, and so today I want us to just... If there's one word that just beats over your head this whole sermon, I want you to think of the word signs. Think of signs. What is the point of there being a sign? Um, Pastor Jim preached from a sign last week. The second sign uh, was in chapter 4, the healing of an official's son. He gave kind of a, not quite a systematic uh, theology, but he gave kind of a, a general theology of uh, what healing is, how healing relates to faith, why our prayers uh, are heard or unheard as we think they're unheard. They're never unheard, but they're answered the way we want them to be answered or not. Um, and, and so Pastor Jim talked a little bit about healing. Pastor Jim will talk a little bit more about healing. And so today I want to go in a different direction because we're not really going to deal with, with healing as such. But I want to think about the signs, the miracles that take place and what the point of those being in this book are. Uh, and so think about that. What is the point of miracles? And if you get the answer right to that question, you will also get the answer right to the question, what is the point of John's whole book? Because that's the same answer. Um, I was uh, I took a trip with some friends of mine yesterday down to Lake Waccamaw, down below Whiteville. Um, and I saw a lot of signs. There were lots of road signs. Stop signs, obvious, pretty straightforward. Stop signs, yield signs, one of my favorite signs, which means you don't really have to stop. As long as nobody's coming, you can go on out there. But uh, there's also one of, my, one of my favorite signs, and I wish there were more of those signs on the highway that says, that says um, free flowing right lane. Uh, those of you that have endured the, uh, the traffic jam down 68 out there by the airport, what a, what a colossal nightmare that is. Going from Interstate 40 on to 68 North, heading towards Stokesdale. That lane just keeps going. Like you can come down the exit ramp and you can just keep on going down 68. You don't have to, you don't have to slow down really. I mean, you have to slow down a little, but I don't slow down that much. You don't have to slow down. You can keep on going. Well, I just about rear-ended somebody a couple weeks ago because they didn't go on. It's a free-flowing right lane. That sign would have been important at that particular location, but they don't have one. There's also one called lane ends. And there's always like 60 copies of that sign before the lane ends. And I'm apparently the only one that sees any of the copies before the last one because they're just cutting everybody off. But the road signs that we have, the orange ones and the red ones and the white ones and the green ones, the green ones are always good, the informational signs. There are lots of signs on the road. And so signs are important. Um, the signs that John writes about in his book are really important because they tell us important information about our faith. So I'm going to ask three kind of overarching questions today. What must we know about where the sign is located? Um, we must identify what the sign says. 
And we must identify what the sign is prompting us to do. If the sign says stop, and we know it says stop, and we don't stop, we're being disobedient. We must understand what the sign is prompting us to do. So those are the three overarching thoughts that I want us to guide our time this morning. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Read with me. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in the water after it was stirred up was recovered from whatever ailment he had. Verse 5. The one, there was one man who was there. He had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he already had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me down into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who he was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore... The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you um, speak to our hearts, Lord Jesus. Um, we ask that you uh, pierce our soul. Uh, and we ask that your Holy Spirit move in a great way to illuminate your word in our heart and life. God, we ask that you, uh, that you take away any distractions from what I am about to say. That you would allow me to speak what you have told me to speak. And that's enough. God, we ask that you uh, take your word and imprint it upon our hearts so that others can see you in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, Pastor Jim has given me an assignment that is particularly difficult today um, because this this hunk of scripture, uh, five, uh, 1 through 14, 1 through 15, are very much... Debated in, in secular academic circles, the, the so-called New Testament scholars that don't really believe in Jesus, they like to poke holes in this particular passage and use it as evidence that 
uh, either the book of John should be discounted or passages within John should be discounted or the New Testament should be discounted. Um, there are whole groups of, of so-called academics that like to poke holes in this passage. And so there are a couple of problem spots that I want us to try to iron through first. Uh, there are three ongoing debates among Christians and non-Christians regarding this passage. First is the debate about when these events take place, i.e. what feast this is in verse 1. Because the way that this book fits together with the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, chronologically depends upon which festival this is. The second debate is about the location of these events. And the third debate is about the second half of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4. So, I'm going to take these a little bit out of order, but I'm hoping to thoroughly smash all the debates and move us along to the point of the passage. So first, we must think about our road signs. Again, use the, use the analogy of a road sign. What is the context of our sign? What, uh, where, where is the sign located? Is there a lane that's merging into another lane? Is it a four-way stop? Is it a, a dead end of one street into another? What are the signs and, and, and where are they located? So verses 1 through 5 tell us a little bit about this. First, I want to I wanna try to tackle an ongoing debate amongst believers as to whether or not the second half of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4 should be in print in our Bible. I'm not a heretic. Please don't shoot. Just listen. Uh, the whole of, of verse 4 and the latter half of verse 3 are debated amongst Bible-believing Christians... As to whether or not that that text should be printed in our Bibles. If you were here on Wednesday night during Bible study, I, I, I dove into that a little bit, uh, and we talked a little bit about the details between the different kinds of Greek manuscripts that we have available, uh, the earliest copies of, of John's original writing and Paul's original writing, um, and so. Suffice it to say, and I, I really wish you were here on Wednesday even for Bible study because I don't have time to get into all that. Um, suffice it to say that, that there are three big question marks in the New Testament. First John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. The long ending of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And this passage right here, uh, the end of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4. It is debated whether or not some early... Believing, godly little hermit was scribbling copies of John's writing. Oh, here's the letter from John. Here's the letter from Paul or Peter. And we're, we're going to make as many copies as we can and send them to as many believers as we can. That's how the word was transmitted in the New Testament church. We have evidence of that in Acts. And so somebody along the way, did they add this little snippet? Or did they? did John actually write this? It is really... Uh, a more biblical opinion to believe that this actually should not be in our Bible. And don't, again, don't shoot. There's just three questions. And none of those question marks affect our theology about who Jesus is or what Jesus did. Um, but if, if, if your translation is the same as mine, there's a bracket around this text. And it says, early manuscripts do not include this passage. Some translations in English, I think the English Standard Version, maybe the New American Standard Version, don't include verse 4 at all. 
they skip on ahead to verse 5. And the parts that I read were actually included in the footnotes down at the bottom of the page. I am of the opinion that this text was not written by John. I am of the opinion that some little scribe added it in there to explain verse 7. Um, and so let me point you to uh, the Dr. Warren Wiersbe, a great theologian. I've used a lot of his material today. While it is true that some manuscripts omit the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, it is also true that the event and the man's words in verse 7 would make little sense if these words are eliminated. It seems wisest for us to accept the fact that something extraordinary kept all these handicapped people at this pool hoping for a cure. So my my statement to you is whether a heavenly messenger stirring the water is true or not. The notion that people believed it to be true is true. You with me? So, so whether or not there really was a heavenly messenger that came and stirred up the water... It's a fact that there was a group of people that believed that to be true. Uh, and that's the context of this, of this passage. The next debate is the debate about time. Um, in, in, in no way does this affect the content of the passage either. But scholars that study the book of John uh, talk about chapters 5 through chapter 10. Um, and, and they talk about the festival cycle that takes place in the book. We do not know why John doesn't name the feast, but it does follow a pattern of his. He has a tendency to mention very little that isn't directly connected to the main point of his passage. For instance, in chapter 2, we know that it's the Passover because that explains the buying and the selling that took place in the temple that got Jesus so riled up. In chapter 6, he again tells us it's the Passover, which helps us to understand the fact that there was a great multitude, and that connects to Jesus' teachings. In chapter 7, he tells us that it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. Because the practices that took place during that feast make verse 37 make more sense. In chapter two, in chapter 10, he tells us that it's the Feast of the Dedication. Uh, because that takes place in the winter time. And it makes more sense for Jesus to be in Solomon's porch in this passage. Again, uh, the nature of the feast has nothing to do with what takes place in the healing here in chapter 5. So it makes sense that John didn't add that arbitrary detail. That being said, it's still helpful for us to line John up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and figure out how they fit together chronologically. Some early church fathers, in fact, one of the disciples of the disciple of John, his name is Irenaeus, he believed it to be the Passover. Which would mean there's a whole year between chapter 5 and chapter 6. That throws off the alignment with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it extends Jesus' public ministry to about four years as opposed to two and a half or three. That's a, that's a problem. Uh, some believe that it's the Feast of the Dedication. That takes place in winter, as I said. And, and it probably would not make sense for a bunch of sick folks to be laying around a pool in the middle of the wintertime. So that's probably not it either. Some believe that it's the Feast of the Trumpets. If you have your calendar, every September, there's Rosh Hashanah. You see that on the, on the little calendar that you... I got my little paper calendar downstairs. Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of the Trumpets that's talked about in Leviticus 23. Um, and that's not very likely at all. Some modern scholars believe that it's the Feast of Purim, uh, as uh, explained in the book of Esther. It's doubtful whether it was practiced to go to Jerusalem for this feast. And even if it were, 
held by some, it's doubtful whether Jesus would observe that. So that leaves us with two real options. Because if Passover is not the case, and there are only three mandatory festivals for males to make a pilgrimage, that's Passover, uh, the Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles, there are two really good options for us to believe. First, there's Pentecost. That's the that's the widely held view by the Eastern Orthodox Church. And there's also the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is advocated by many leading evangelicals. These are the only two pilgrimage feasts besides the Passover for Jewish males to go to Jerusalem. All that to say this. Understanding this helps us to put John in line with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and establish Jesus' ministry chronologically. But in no way does it help us understand the context of this passage. There is too little information to speak with certainty. Dr. Wearsby says, We do not know which feast Jesus was observing when he went to Jerusalem. And it is not important that we know. His main purpose for going was not to maintain a religious tradition, but to heal a man and use the miracle as a basis for a message to the people. The third major debate that takes place is the debate about the location of these events. It is true, as many scholars point out, that we, we can't be certain where exactly this took place on a map. There's, we, we don't, we're not able to pinpoint this pool exactly. But there are three words that help us to come pretty close. The word pool here is used only three times in the New Testament. It's used in here. It's used twice in chapter 9. And to help us understand Greek words that are very rare in the New Testament, we look outside of Scripture for the the use of the same word. It is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes 2. It's used to describe a pond or, or a garden reservoir. And the Hebrew that it's translated from means to kneel down, meaning a kneeling place for animals or men to drink. In early church writings, after John wrote, this same word is used to describe the baptistry. In this passage, it's clearly a derivation of the, of the, of the verb kalambao, which means to dive. So literally, it's a, it's a swimming pool uh, for folks to, to be in. Why is that important at all? Well, bear with me. It'll get there. The word Bethesda here is one of several variant spellings in both the English, the Greek, the Aramaic, the Hebrew, and the Latin. And so it's a confused title, a proper name, uh, but it's probably Bethesda, um, although it's oftentimes confused with Bethsaida, which is a town on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the third word that we know for a fact, is the sheep gate. That is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. This pool is thought to have been used chiefly to wash the garments. During the Old Testament, uh, the garments of those who were offering up sacrifices and even the sacrifices themselves that were slain. Uh, Some believe that this, this legend regarding the waters being stirred up, their healing power or supposed healing power may have come from the, the blood that had been washed from the sacrifices in this water. Modern archaeology helps us understand a little bit. Um, there are modern buildings today in Jerusalem. Underneath that is the, uh, the, the foundation and the remains of a 5th century Byzantine basilica. Below that, are there, they believe they have found the five colonnades. 
that divide up two different pools, one called Bethesda and one called Siloah, as mentioned in chapter 9. Near the king's garden. It is possible that these pools were fed by a spring named Siloam, which dates back to the Old Testament. Um, that, that spring wasn't always full of water. Supposedly, in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, water would bubble up loudly in the spring uh, at random times, and it would travel through quarried stone and fill the two pools. This supports the existence of the legend in which the, the lame man believed. Now, are we academic enough? Am I academic enough for you today? Y'all just get your pencils out, sharpen them up. Here we go. Now we're gonna we're gonna get good. I promise. We're gonna get good. The Hebrew word Bethesda. That's a Hebrew word. Uh, literally means house of grace or mercy. the The word Beit means house. Uh, the Hebrew word Beit Lehem Bethlehem means house of bread. This one means house of divine mercy or grace. This reinforces the notion that God's of God's goodness in giving any supposed healing virtue to these waters this day. Dr. Wearsby writes, no matter how you look at this miracle, it's an illustration of the grace of God. It was grace that brought Jesus to the pool for who would want to mingle with a crowd of helpless people. The fact that Jesus came to the man spoke to him, healed him, and then met him later in the temple is proof of Jesus' wonderful grace and mercy. Now, by tackling these three big questions, or attempting to tackle these three big questions that tend to surround this passage, I want us to really get down to what the sign says. Verses 15, or verses 5 through 16. What does the sign say? And again, I apologize for seeming academic. But if, 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 if secular people want to teach us that, that this passage is full of holes, and, and if, if this passage is supposed evidence of the fact that Jesus is not divine or that this word cannot be trusted, we need to shore up and understand that, that no, that this is a legitimate passage. John did write these words based on what he saw his master doing. So what is that? Let me begin back with verse Three, when these lay a, within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse five, one man was there who had been sick or disabled. The, the, the real word should probably be disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up. But while I'm going, someone goes down ahead of me. Jesus knew this fellow and asked him if he wanted to be healed. You would think the fellow would have responded with an enthusiastic yes. But instead, he began to give excuses. It seems to me that that this fellow had waited so long that not only was his body paralyzed, but because of this sad condition, even his will had become paralyzed. Uh, Dr. James White, a pastor uh, down in Charlotte, uh, uh, he was a seminary professor, he's now a pastor down in Charlotte. He writes, another possible reason for this question relates to the man's spirit. Many who have experienced prolonged pain or misfortune have surrendered even the will to attempt to overcome their situation. 
When he shared with Jesus his difficulty getting into the pool, Jesus proclaimed, get up. I want us to really just take in verse 9. Instantly the man got up. No, no. Jesus said, Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But does verse 9 say the man got up, picked up his mat and walked? No. It says the man got well. John is writing this and John understands that this isn't just some, some, uh, you know, breath of adrenaline that allowed the man to stand even though he was still injured. This is a complete and total healing. The man got well. Is it, is it possible for us to overemphasize that Jesus healed this man through the power of his spoken word? Jesus didn't, didn't, uh, make mud in the dirt and rub it on his eyes. Jesus didn't tell him to go wash seven times. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't do some of the other things that he has done in healing. Jesus said, get up. And the man was well. The power of the very word of Christ is, is enough to bring complete and total healing. That we, we can't, we can't make too much of that. The power of God is the very, the very means of creation. Look at Genesis chapter one. God spoke and it existed. God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there was earth. God spoke and he separated waters from dry land. The very, the very speech, the spoken word of God is enough to make anything possible. Can we, can we just, how big is God? I mean, are we getting there? Are we getting there? How big is God to speak and allow these things to take place? Now, fast forward to John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14, the word came and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the very manifestation in bodily form of the means of creation in Genesis chapter 1. We cannot overemphasize that Jesus healed this man through the power of his spoken word alone. Now, here we go. Verse 10. Jesus surely could have come a day earlier or waited until another day. But God's sense of humor, I believe, seems to direct him to go on the Sabbath deliberately to get a rise out of religious establishment. Again, this is yet another thing about this passage that we don't have time to get into to get together. I wish you were here Wednesday night for Bible study. But if you weren't, read your newsletter. I spent a little time talking about the Sabbath, so I ain't got time to get into all that today. But... In the, in the, the Sabbath, um, the Hebrews, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, they acknowledged the Torah as the law of God. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are included in that. The law of Moses, okay, you with me? Okay. In addition to the law of Moses, the Pharisees wrote what's called the Mishnah. You can go, go down to Barnes & Noble, buy a copy of the Mishnah. It's a great big fat book. But... It's, it's all the rules and regulations that they put in place to protect the Torah. If you obey all of these rules, there's no way you could disobey the actual law of Moses. 
And so in the Mishnah, there are 39 tasks that were disallowed during the Sabbath. One of those was carrying a burden from one domain to another. If this little poor fella has a bedroll of straw, a sleeping bag, bear with me, a little sleeping bag, and he totes that around, that is carrying a burden from one domain or, the, or to another. That's what the Pharisees were getting dialed up about in this passage. In no way did the man disobey the law of Moses. Only the overbearing legalistic rules of the Pharisees. As supposed spiritual leaders, the Sanhedrin took responsibility to vet any and all preachers and teachers who appeared in the land of, of, of Israel. John the Baptist was one of those. They, they vetted anybody that was teaching. They were attempting to squelch false prophets, which might be a good thing. But the fact that they so quickly turned their attention from the healing of a man to... Wait, where's my... Oh, man, I lost my train of thought. I'm, this, this is a disaster. I can't even finish a sentence. Anyway, but the fact that they so quickly turned their attention from the healed man to the healer shows their sensitivity wasn't to the Lord. Rather, this, their sensitivity was to their regulations. Let me go back and say that one more time so that it makes sense. As supposed spiritual leaders... The Sanhedrin took responsibility to vet all preachers who appeared in the land of Israel. They were attempting to squelch false prophets, which might be a good thing. But the fact that their attention turned so quickly from a healed man to the healer shows that their sensitivity wasn't to the Lord, rather to their regulations. You with me on that one? Did that make sense? had to go back and sometimes if you just say it enough, it'll all make sense. Sorry about that. But... Though the response of those present should have been excitement and joy, they were too spiritually blinded by all their religious tradition to see the power of God on display. So, crickets, hear me. Though the response should have been excitement and joy, they were too spiritually blinded by all their religious tradition to see the power of God on display. There's an application point there somewhere. Just just saying. They had taken a gift from God to this man and they made it a shallow set of rules and restrictions reducing their ability to treat others with love and compassion. Now, I don't want to delve into the whole theology of a of the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was a great gift of God. And they took it and made it a shallow set of rules and restrictions. Dr. Wearsley writes, It is not easy to understand the relationship between this man and Jesus. There is no evidence that he, was, that he believed on Christ and was converted. Yet we cannot say that he was opposed to the Savior. In fact, he did not even know who it was that healed him until Jesus met him in the temple. No doubt the man went there to give thanks to God and to offer the appropriate sacrifices. It seems strange, however, that the man did not actively seek a closer relationship with the one who healed him. But more than one person has gratefully accepted the gift and ignored the giver. It is possible to experience an amazing miracle and still not be saved and go to heaven. 
I'm just going to throw that wrench in your spokes right now. A lot of times when we see the signs in John and we see the hand of God on display in the lives of these people, we assume that they got saved in the process. We cannot assume that about this fellow. Maybe he did. I hope he did. I hope to meet this fellow one day and hear all about his story. But we cannot assume that this man was saved just because he experienced the hand of God in his life. Here's an application point there too. If you allow me. Verse 14. Let's, let's march along. Verse 14. Jesus found the man again inside the temple courts. David, I didn't, I didn't cue up our little uh, map. There's a little map right there. Sorry, David. Um, if you look here, there's, there's a, this is a little map of the location of the pool of Bethesda. This is all a guesswork, okay? Based on modern, uh, archaeology, we, we have a pretty good idea of understanding. There's the, there's the temple. There's the temple, the proper temple there, the, the dark black lines. And then the temple courts surround them. There's the sheep gate that they would bring the sacrifices into the temple courts. There's the pool. All right, there's a, there's a pool up there next to the T. And there's a, a, another pool a little bit closer. Those are two different pools. Those are the two pools that, that we were talking about. And so that's where the man was lying was out there between the temple and the pool. And, and by the time he caught up with Jesus again, they were within the temple courts. It's also worthwhile to mention that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, this lame man would have not been allowed to come into the temple courts at all. So let's, let's understand that. He would not have been allowed into the temple courts at all because he would have been deemed unclean. But because of the fact that a healing took place, he then came into the temple, which is a good thing, to offer appropriate sacrifices. At this point... Jesus catches him again. I should have highlighted that little uh, picture earlier, but I've totally miss, missed my notes here. Okay. Jesus found the man inside the, 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 the court. And as with the Samaritan woman, he addresses the deeper condition of the man's relationship with God. Stay with me now. Oftentimes this verse is ripped from its context. Some people argue that physical health is directly tied to spiritual obedience. And I I say that it's not, and I praise the Lord that it's not. Others go a step beyond that and say that, that, that illness is a direct punishment of specific sin. Well, it's a wonder how any of us are walking today, if that's the case. This is directly contradicted in John chapter 9 when, when Jesus touches the blind man. It also contradicts Romans chapter 8 because Romans 8 teaches that many tragedies are simply the result of life in a fallen world. It's understood that there, there is sin in the world. There is sin in this man's life. And that is certainly tied to his condition. After all, we live in a fallen world. But there's no proof that he is in this condition because of a particular sin that he committed. Unlike the paralytic healed after being lowered through the roof... Jesus didn't tell this man that his sins are forgiven. I want to highlight that as well. Unlike the paralytic that was lowered through the roof, Jesus didn't tell this man that his sins are forgiven. Dr. White uh, writes, He did not say that one can actually stop sinning, but in accord with the entire biblical witness that believers should not purposefully live a life of sin. After all, for Jesus... The consequences of sin are far more serious than any form of physical illness. So, like many other miracles that take place, 
what's the point of John telling us this passage? If it's possible that this fellow wasn't even saved, if if a great healing takes place, what's the point of John telling us about this? That's the question that must must be in the forefront of our minds. I refer you back to chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus that Pastor Jim preached on, on Easter Sunday. If you were here on Easter Sunday and you heard Pastor Jim's sermon about Lazarus, let's all agree that, that Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the tomb for Lazarus' sake. Okay? If I'm in heaven and God calls me back down here to be with y'all, it's a little bit of a disappointment. Just saying. I love you. Not that much. Okay? If I'm in heaven with Jesus, I don't want to come back down here. And that's, that's the situation of Lazarus. So, Jesus didn't heal Lazarus for Lazarus' sake. Jesus didn't heal this man for his sake. Why did the healing take place? That's the, the question that we have to wrestle with. Why does the sign exist? Why does the book of John exist? Verse 17. My father. Instead of using the customary Jewish, our father, Jesus says, my father. In doing so, he's claiming divine authority by saying that he associates personally and intimately with God the father. Instantly, the Jewish leaders went from worrying about Sabbath rule breaking to worrying about blasphemy. The penalty of blasphemy is death. Isaiah chapter 35 indicates that the Messiah would be identified by the healing, uh, by healing with the power of God. It would be this penalty of blasphemy from which Jesus would ultimately die. Come on now. We're, we're right there. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the power of God manifest in human likeness. That's the point of this story. That's the point of the book of John. The point is for us to understand that that God became a man and walked and talked among us and he died, but he didn't stop there. He rose again and overcame the consequence of sin once and for all. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this whole book. Dr. Wearsby writes, Jesus made himself Equal with God because he is God. This is the theme of John's gospel. The Jewish leaders could not disprove his claims. So they tried to destroy him and get him out of the way. Both in his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus openly affirmed his deity. That's the point of the sign being where it is. That's the point of this passage. And that's the point of the entire book of John. It is so imperative that we always take a step back and see the larger picture. Especially if you're studying the Old Testament. Take a step back and look and see the hand of God throughout the Old Testament as he brings forth the Messiah in the fullness of time, as Colossians tells us. If we're if we're looking at the parables, the parables that Jesus is teaching, don't overanalyze, don't overanalyze who's the big brother and who's the little brother. And the prodigal son. We're, we're all the prodigal. Let's agree on that. And God is the father. Don't overanalyze the whole thing. See the big picture. Jesus taught parables because Jesus was the son of God. 
Jesus performed signs and miracles because Jesus is the son of God. That's the point. Hang on now. Hang on now. I'm about to swing out of my shoes, Jacob. I'm getting excited about this thing. Okay. There's a British writer named George MacDonald. He, he writes that this passage gives us a profound insight into our Lord's miracles. Jesus did instantly what the Father is always doing slowly. For example, in nature, the Father is slowly turning water into wine. There's a process that water becomes wine. But Jesus did it in a moment. Through the, through the powers in nature, the Father is healing broken bodies. God has given us the gift of modern medicine through his divine providence. But Jesus healed broken bodies immediately. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread through the process of of harvesting grain. From sowing to harvest, God is making bread multiply. But Jesus multiplies them in a moment with his own hand when he feeds the 5,000. Jesus is a more clear depiction of... Of who God is and how God works. Jesus is the most perfect understanding of who God is as he reveals himself to us. So, what does the sign prompt us to do? See God. What does the sign prompt us to do? Obey. What does the sign prompt us to do? Worship. Because he is who he says he is. The point of the sign is the point of any sign. The point of the whole book of John. To point you to the Messiah. To the Christ. To the very Son of God incarnate. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this sermon and this series. Is to help us see the hand of God. And as we behold the hand of God, we worship God because of who he is and what he's done. Maybe you need to repent of sin in your life and invite Christ into your heart. Maybe you need to become more closely attached to this church in a formal way. Maybe God is speaking to you in a personal way today about a commitment that you need to make in your life. Allowing him to take hold in your heart. However the Lord is speaking to you through this passage today, I ask that you listen and let him do so now. Father God, we thank you for this passage. And, and, and my futile attempts of explaining this passage have surely gotten in the way. But I hope, I hope that you have spoken clearly to the hearts and lives of someone In this room. I hope that understanding academic reasonings about certain issues of this text. Understanding uh, the fact that this gentleman in this passage may or may not have even been saved. All of these things pale in comparison to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. And it it is in that truth that we stand very firmly. God, I pray that that you would help us to stand in awe and wonder of, of, of who you are and what you do. And when we stand in awe and when we stand in amazement at who Jesus is,
Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in a fresh and a new way today. God, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of us in this room. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us personally. If there is one here that needs to do business with you today, I pray that you would burden their soul toward they can't even walk out the door until they've gotten right with you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.